Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Hello, I'm Elaine miller Karras, and this is Resiliency Within. Uh, my show today is also live streaming on Facebook at Resiliency Within, so please join us there if you'd like. But my show today will highlight the book, Post-Traumatic Thriving, The Art, Science, and Stories of Resilience by Dr. Randall Bell, who is with me today. There are many social and political issues plaguing our nation and our world. COVID, climate change, and the social unrest are impacting our nation and world. In our lifetimes, most of us will experience traumatic events, and some of us will, um, because of our lived experience, will develop post-traumatic stress injury. Dr. Bell states that ultimately the quality of our lives depends on our ability to successfully process our heartbreaks and our catastrophes. In post-traumatic thriving, Dr. Bell follows the journey from the deaths of the initial shock to the pinnacle of ultimate healing and growth. Dr. Bell will share some of the poignant stories of people he has met on his journey and interweave advanced science with the stories of people who have not just survived, but use their traumas to fuel to thrive. Dr. Bell, oh my goodness, he has quite a wonderful biography. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him, and you can read more about him on uh, the uh, Voice America webpage of Resiliency Within, but he's an economist, a sociologist, and he is widely considered to be one of the the world's, I mean, this is really true about you, Randall, top authority in the field of post-traumatic thriving. He's the founder of Core IQ. His research has taken him to 50 states and seven continents. His cases include the World Trade Center, Flight 93 crash site, the BP oil spill, Hurricane Katrina, the nuclear testing on the Bikini Atoll, and tragedies such as the John Benet Ramsey, O.J. Simpson, and Heaven's Gate mass suicide. His clients include the federal government, the state governments, international tribunals, major corporations, and homeowners. Dr. Bell believes that the problem is not the problem. The problem is how we react to the problem. And there's so much we are going to learn from him now. So welcome, Dr. Randall Bell, to the show. Uh, we've been having some lively conversations. So I'm just going to ask you as, we, as we're getting started, is there anything on your mind right now that you'd like to share before we get um, into some of the questions that we prepared together? Well, Elaine, thank you. It's, it's really an honor to be speaking with you and on your show. I, I've been looking forward to this for some time. Uh, nothing really on my mind. Uh, my mind's a blank slate, but uh, I'm open to whatever, whatever. You're the expert, whatever you want to talk about. Well, one of the things that um, hearing about the work and, you know, when we had our conversation, we realized that we had been to some of the same, you know, tragedies, but we hadn't met each other. We probably even passed in the airport one time. Who knows? But I'm just curious about how has your life experience sparked the work you're so passionate about now in the world? Well, my life started off kind of as a, I'm a numbers guy. I, I, I remember numbers, I compute numbers, and I'm you know, reasonably good at it. 
I wasn't really uh, into sociology or psychology or trauma. Um, I, I just kind of, that was my mindset. And I grew up that way. My grad school work at UCLA was uh, economics and that kind of thing. And then I got into this field of disasters and distress. That started in the ni- 1980s, probably before you were born. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, I started working on these cases. And then I started meeting the people behind the statistics. And that's where I had a, a tremendous kind of shift in thinking that it's not about real estate. It's not about money. It's uh, that's part of the equation because there are practical issues that need to be addressed, but it's really about people and the people behind the statistics. So when you sit down on a coconut tree log um, on the Bikini Atoll with somebody who, you know, literally witnessed an atom bomb going off across the lagoon and lost his daughter to radioactive fallout, that shifts the whole discussion. You know, yes. I'm there to compute the numbers. We got a $2 billion verdict for, for them, which was important. But more important was listening to this gentleman's story and trying to understand what the people went through because the court system does not award hugs. They don't award apologies, they award dollars. So that has to be calculated and that's what I do. But, but I think um, having that dimension of understanding the people behind the statistics makes the work more complete and certainly for me, far more fulfilling. Well, one of the things I've noted about you since we've had our conversations is that you have a great capacity uh, for empathy and also compassion, Randall. This is what I've noted about you. So after that happened, and here you are an economist and working with the numbers, is it true you went back to school to become a sociologist? Is that what happened? I, I did, and I, and I appreciate the kind words. I didn't really start out that way. I was, frankly, you know, I was kind of a pig, and to some <laughs> degree, so I had a to, you know, I got to keep that in check. But yes, I did go back to school. I earned my doctorate in uh, basically sociology because I really wanted to understand better the social systems and what, you know the various reactions to things. As a sociologist, and I'm sure you know this, we don't look at things in black and white. You know, there's not an exact right answer. There's a spectrum of answers across a spectrum of people. And you need to really understand, you know, the the complete, more complete picture of that. So that dimension has been very helpful to me to kind of open up my mind to, to that way of thinking. Well, you know, I think you said something, you know, I know that you were kind of, it was in kind of a humorous way about saying that you were like a pig. Um, but <laughs> Pigs can be very kindly, by the way. Um, but in any of it, but I think there's something that's transformative about when you do a deep listen, when people are suffering. And what I heard you say is that there was a transformative pro- uh, aspect that happened with your work with numbers when you started listening to the human toll of a, a father, talking about his beloved daughter. And so I think these kinds of journeys are what's important for us because I think that's how we take these lived experiences and, you know, what do we do with it? How do we reshape the experience and how do we contribute to be part of healing besides financial healing, which we know can be great, but there's all the money in the world can't give the father his daughter back, which I'm sure he would have rather taken than all the dollars in the world. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering, um, you know, you you've gone to onto these disasters, and you told you shared with us the learning from that gentleman. Gentlemen, but I imagine you have learned a lot from many people. So I'm wondering if you can maybe tell us a little bit about some of the learnings and the wisdom that you've learned from others that you're now incorporating into your your life story, and also in in the in the writings of your book. So could you share a little bit about that? Well, sure. I mean, there's been a lot of these kind of 
wake-up moments. I remember with the whole O.J. Simpson crime scene, I, I was with, uh, I met Lou Brown. He lives, happens to live uh, close by. In fact, he's, I could practically see his house out the window from where I am. And uh, you know, one day I w- found myself sitting at the kitchen table and Denise was there and Dominique and Tanya and Mrs. Brown and Mr. Brown. And I was sitting there and, and we were having um, uh, a conversation. And for some reason, I guess they decided I was okay. And I, one thing I do in these cases, I take very, very seriously is to, is to keep confidential information, just that confidential. But um, I, I think I'm okay. In fact, I'm sure I'm okay sharing that uh, I, I was just, uh, you know, I was there to talk about the condominium and the way to handle the condominium. But the, of course, the, the conversation is much bigger than that. And, and so I was there when Denise had a moment where it really came to her that she was going to put her efforts into educating uh, people about, particularly women, about spousal abuse. And that was, that, that was a big wake-up moment. This, this is much bigger than a condo. Um, when I worked on the World Trade Center, I happened to be given a speech in New York uh, the same week of 9-11. And, you know, walk, I'll never forget walking down the sidewalks in New York, and there are Buddhist monks there praying on the sidewalk. Um, and I'll never forget the moment where a young lady came up to me with a flyer and said, have you seen my dad? You know, mm-hmm. I, those those moments just mm-hmm. really hit hard. And even somebody, you know, uh, as as dense as me can start getting um, a better sense of what this is all about. And I've had a number of these moments where it's just been really, you know, a, a wake up moment. And I thought, you know, this is I've had this unique access to these, you know, really astounding people who I really admire and I think that this is too important that when I get to the time where I retire, it's too important that I just play golf. Um, you know, golf's fine, but I wanted to accumulate these stories and, and um, kind of give access to the reader of the book or in my conversations with you or, and, and others, what it's like to be in these disastrous situations because trauma hits us all. And so when you say what it's like to be in these trauma um experiences, you know, you've told us two stories. Are there others that you'd like to, to highlight? Because I know that your book is, is, is uh, full of stories that people have shared with you about their lived experience. And I think it might be really helpful if our listeners know a little bit about the other ones that might come to mind. Well, sure. Yeah. What I, what I did with the book, Elaine, is I, I, first of all, I really, speaking of books, I really hit the books. I hit the academic books. And, and I'm sure you know this, there's the five stages of grief, which are kind of, you start out with the shock and the denial and the anger and the bargaining, and you land on depression. And then there's a great body of literature that came, uh, came out uh, on post-traumatic growth. And I hit that literature really hard. So I really read up on the literature academically. And then what I did with the book is I interwove the science with, with the stories, with the people that I was meeting, and in hopes that when I, you know, work on these cases, and I'm still working on them to this day, I'm working on uh, uh, Hurricane Harvey right now down in Texas, people that had their homes blown apart um, with, with the hurricane. Um, I started interweaving the stories with the science. So there's 15 chapters. What I did that I think is a little unique is I took the five stages of grief the five stages of post-traumatic growth, and then I put a bridge, and I call the three sections dive, survive, and thrive. And and all of them, I, I do my best to bring the science to the table, but 
in inter interweaving the stories, gee, one, one that comes to mind is um, Jerry Jewell. Jerry, you might recognize that name. Jerry, I went to high school with her. She was a star on, the, on uh, ABC's Facts of Life. She just starred on HBO's Deadwood. And um, I knew her sister who sadly passed away from cancer. And um, I've had many conversations with Jerry over the years and we just had Easter dinner together. And, and, and we talked about, you know, what it's like to be born with a disability. She's the first person with disability to, to land a starring role. She's spoken at the White House three times, but she still has this disability. And so we've talked about, you know, the shock. Well, you know, she was born with <laughs> in shock, you know, with, with this and, and how she's progressed through each thing. And I've really had the, the chance to sit here and with her and really, I don't want to say interrogate her, but <laughs> really question her, you know, about what it's like, what, what differentiates her from others who have had serious traumas to really propel her into, into thriving. Um, and I can tell you, I, I, she is the real deal. She is, she is positive. She's optimistic, but she's like anybody who's been through a trauma or anyone at all, life gets to her and me and everyone else. And how does she deal with that? So, you know, that's a, that's another one, you know, Jerry, I just really uh, adore. Um, but, but the, what keeps her going is she realizes she's the most famous disabled person, certainly in the United States, probably the world. And, and her efforts have inspired a lot of people. She gets a lot of emails, a lot of letters. And that's really kind of what drives to keep her going at this point because she's in so much pain from her disability. So that's, that's one of the conversations I've been uh, having. And, and there are lots of others I'm happy to go into. Well, I, I would love to hear, I, ha I would love to hear, hear others. But I think when you talk about Jerry, um, so she is definitely a person that has had, still has suffering. And yet she's turned the suffering into having a, a professional career. And I think this, I would like to talk more about this when you say, and now people write to her and she is continuing to other people's well-being and also some other people that have different abilities saying, oh, well, if Jerry could do it, can I do it? So is that something you've heard from other uh, individuals that because they've gone through this kind of suffering, that something clicked in them that knew that they had to contribute to the world in a different way, just like what happened to you from the gentleman that you, you met after the atomic explosion. Yeah, Elaine, I think that uh, you hit the nail on the head. The, the gentleman from the atomic explosion was a very mild manner, very quiet guy. I, I got to his island, which I, I remember my memory's right. It was called Roderick. And there was a small group of us on a boat. I saw this gentleman sitting on a um, log, probably 100 yards from the whole group by himself. And I thought, that's, that's kind of interesting. I, I want to make sure he's, you know, okay. And so I wa wandered down there, down the beach, and sat down and started talking to him. And while he was very slight and, and um, short and uh, quiet, uh, he was very powerful because he was the voice that kept this whole thing going that resulted in a $2 billion verdict. And I learned a lot of wisdom from him. And it's the same thing with Jerry and all the people I talk about in the book, Leo Fender, who lived two streets away from me, and JC, who I met in San Quentin Prison, who's out on parole. We can talk about all these folks. There's something, and you, you said it probably better than I could, there's something that triggers that makes them say, you know what, I, I got beat up and, and really in a tough spot. 
you know, whether it was mistakes I made or just I got handed to me at birth or, or something. Um, but I can't control what happened, but I can control how I uh, react to it going forward. And that's that magic moment. And it's as if, you know, trauma, as you know, creates an enormous amount of energy. And so the whole key is to tap into that energy and use that energy in a productive way uh, that really ignites something really big, big and exciting. You know, Jerry was becoming a television star. Not, not everybody wants to be a television star. So there's lots of ways to, you know, to, to thrive. Um, Leo Fender, he was a young boy, grew up in Fullerton, California, where I happen to be from. He uh, had his eye out as an eight-year-old kid uh, with a picket fence accident. And then he had, lost his hearing through an amplifier when he had a radio shop on Harbor Boulevard. Um, he got this idea for an electric guitar. He made uh, some prototypes. Everyone laughed at him. They called them boat paddles. Uh, he got kind of mocked for it. And then they exploded. And today it's a billion-dollar industry. But he never did it for the money. He did it for the passion of putting instruments into musicians' hands. Um, that's what post-traumatic thriving looks like, is to say, you know, I, I may be half blind. I may be deaf. I may be disabled. I may be this. I may be that. Um, by, by the age of, by college age, 66 to 85% of everybody's has suffered at least one trauma. And by the time you get to my age, um, it's everyone, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So you don't get out of this life without having some trauma, yeah. I think. No, you, know, well, you, you know, and that's why I'm, I'm going to ask you, it's just something occurred to me because we have had conversations and because I know something happened to you when you were a little person. And so you had something that you had to deal with as a very young child. And I, you know, it's so funny because what, what came up to me, I'm having this image of heart, Randall, because I'm saying, oh my gosh, this guy has such a big heart. He saw the one person sitting by himself and he chose to go over there. Not everyone would do that. I've been to disasters and sometimes people don't go over to that one person that's by mm -hmm. themselves. Yeah. So would you be willing to share a little bit about your lived experience of what happened to you when you were a little person? Um, would that be okay? Yeah, of course. The uh, My story is one that I kept to myself for decades because I made the classic mistake of bottling it up inside, which is the, if you want to heal from trauma, don't do what I did. I'm the poster boy of, of mistakes, but I was born with a congenital heart defect and I had open heart surgery when I was 11 and it was traumatic. I'm, you know, I, I tried to play it down. My parents played it down. It was embarrassing. I live in Southern California, go to the beach and I got this gigantic scar on my back because um, I was so little that the doctors had to take out a, a, out a rib to get in there and do their thing. And um, so when the sur surgery was over, I just never wanted to talk about it. And I didn't talk about it. Well, when you, when you, whether it's my trauma or anyone else's, when you don't talk about it, and we call the process in the book, uh, I learned this is San Quentin Prison, sitting in the fire, meaning having those uh, you know, ugly, embarrassing, difficult conversations and sit in the fire and talk about it, you start an internal war. And outside you might look just fine, but inside you're, you're, eating, you're being eaten up. So that went on for years and years. And um, long story short, uh, a buddy of mine was over visiting from Texas. He says, you want to go high, uh, climb Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa? And like, a, like an idiot, <laughs> I said yes, <laughs> yes <you laughs> without doing my homework. But when I say I'm going to do it, I do it. And I went to the doctor to get a checkup. I thought that might be a good idea. Long story short, the doctor said, you might need another heart surgery. So I went to a, the first surgeon. He says, yep, you need surgery. And I thought, well, I want a second opinion. I went to another cardiologist. 
She was wonderful. She is wonderful. She put me on, I I talk in the book about grounding and meditation and Harvard studies coming about the healing effects of meditation. That all comes from my my cardiologist. I'm not smart enough to think of this stuff. And um, long story short, this holistic view, this holistic uh, process, I didn't have to have heart surgery. And yes, I did some at Mount Kilimanjaro at age 60. So, um, so that's what the process kind of looks like. But one of the things I had to come to terms with was talking about it. And I stood on my cardiologist's uh, treadmill and she plugged me in. She hadn't even turned it on yet. She plugged it in. She goes, your heart rate's 150. She goes, what? And she took it out and checked the wiring and plugged it back in. She goes, and it was post-traumatic stress disorder. And I'm in the, I'm in the middle <laughs> of writing this book. <laughs> and and, and I, it took me 10 years to write it. <laughs> but but all the language was, you need to do this and you need to do that. It was kind of a professorial, you know, preachy kind of tone. And I had to go through hundreds of pages and rework and say, we need to do this. We need to do that because I was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder because I bottled up this heart surgery thing from being a kid. Now I talk about it openly. I talk about it in the book. And I just saw my cardiologist two weeks ago and I get on her t- uh, treadmill and my heart rate is normal. So that's what healing looks like. These principles really, really work, and they've, they've actually worked for me. And it turns out I was probably writing the book for myself and didn't know it. Isn't that something how oftentimes that is what we do in our journey? We end up doing something that we really believe in and going, oh, I need to learn this. This is why I'm so invested in this. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story because I see that little 11-year-old because when you talk about the heart and hearing about your heart and the heart that you're extending to the world right now through the work that you're doing it does seem you know, incredibly interconnected. But also, I think this might be a segue in it. And we'll also talk more about this after we have the break because we won't have enough time in the time that we have right now. But there's a whole science. And I, and I think it's really important in our show, we've been talking about the science of trauma. But when you talk about a, a heart rate of 150 beats per minute, you know, we talk about that being in the sympathetic part of our nervous system. Mm-hmm. And for some of us, we could just be sitting in our chair and our heart rate is like a beating drum and beating too fast, which is really meant for short action, right? For getting away from the threat, from running away from the tiger. And when we're resting and sitting, it's supposed to come down into a parasympathetic response, which is our resting and digesting. So I know that the science of this really caught your eye as well. So maybe we should talk about what is your definition of trauma? You just talked about your personal experience, but do you have a a broader definition to share with our audience? I do, and I, I want to give credit to people. Uh, I, I don't know exactly where I heard this definition. I'm going to paraphrase it, but it's it's not mine. But the, the idea of trauma is that it's anything that shifts us, and you just said it so well, shifting us from the sympath, you know, from the parasympathetic calm nervous system into sympathetic uh, fight, flight, and freeze modes. And it's it, what might traumatize me might not traumatize you, and vice versa. So everybody's trauma is is completely valid. Um, but it's any event of which you, you, you know, you go through anger and you go through denial and you go through bargaining and depression. But if that lasts more than two or three months and lingers longer, as mine did for decades with my um, uh, childhood uh, heart surgery, you're probably experiencing trauma. And that's the time to reach out and get some help. Um, 
two or three months, maybe four months, somebody passes away that you love. You don't get over that. You get through that. But if you're not getting through that successfully, you might be traumatized from it. And it's anything that kind of takes our brains. As, as we know, we have the outer brain, which is the human brain, the midbrain, it's the mammal brain, and the inner brain is the reptilian brain. When trauma hits, our, our outer and midbrains turn off and our inner reptilian brain, the instinct brain turns on and trauma gets, it's kind of like the, the accelerate on a car gets stuck and, and revved up and it doesn't unstick. That's, that's trauma and we need help. Well, and what you say is so important because you said something earlier that I want to highlight to our, our listeners and that is that there's a lot of energy that is connected to undigested trauma. And that energy can be turned into, like with Jerry, into becoming an actress, or it can be turned into becoming an advocate, or I could say for you, becoming a writer and someone who's now going around the world talking about the the possibilities of post-traumatic thriving. But for some people that don't have this information, that energy gets turned inward, like you said already, but it also can get turned outward into anger, rage, violence, war, addictions, and all the isms in the world that many of us have suffered from or our family members have suffered from. So this is not a, a and this is a, a very important conversation because this conversation that Randall and I are having, if you're listening and you're thinking, oh my gosh, that's me, there is a way out and there's a way through. I love the way you said through because with grief, you're never going to lose that kind of sadness. I can think about my father who I dearly loved. I'm sad that he passed. He'll, oh, that sadness will always be, be with me, but I eventually got through it. It wasn't easy. So though this conversation is very important because behaviors are impacted from what we do. And I think you've seen that in the world as well, um, Randall. I mean, do you yeah. want to talk a little bit about those be- before we take our break? Well, Lane, I love speaking with you for a lot of reasons. One is that, you know, I do a lot of TV and radio interviews, and I'm talking to very bright people, but they're, the topic of trauma is new to them. You're an expert in the topic, and you take the conversation up to a whole new level. And as you know, trauma can manifest in a lot of self-medication, and you listed a bunch of them, the addictions, the workaholism, the anger addictions, all of that. And so trauma doesn't necessarily mean that a happy ending, we're going to bounce back bigger and better than before. There are conscientious behaviors and choices we can make that take us in that direction, but it's not guaranteed. So yes, um, in the aftermath of trauma, self-medication in all its forms Uh, mask the pain. That's what alcoholism is all about. It's about masking the pain, drug addiction, workaholism. That's my own personal uh, pet peeve is, is, or or challenge is workaholism. It masks the pain. The idea is to go from the self-medication to self-care. Self-care is the exercise, uh, the, you know, the eating right that that I have to do. Uh, (laughs) That we're both doing right now that we both talked about before the show started. Yes, exactly. (laughs) It's about hanging out with my granddaughter a lot of which I've had the chance to do recently. It's about taking care of myself and taking care of others and, and doing those kinds of things. So it's a shift in mindset. And when we shift from the self-medic, self-medication gets a bad name. I think it's okay because it helps, you know, manage unmanageable pain for a while. But if we get stuck there, that, that can bring on big problems. Ideas to gradually step off those kinds of things that mass the pain into facing the realities, but in a productive, 
a healthy, positive way. Well, and I think this is a perfect junk juncture. We're going to take our break because what we're going to talk more about after the break is how do we get unstuck? How do we move through what has happened to us into newer direction of healing? And I think maybe both you and I will talk a little bit about our experiences that we talked about during our pre-show, um, as well as other things that um, Dr. Randall Bell can illuminate um, and help us understand. And hopefully, I hope you all go out and buy his book and remember that it's called Post-Traumatic Thriving, The Art and Science and Stories of Resilience. So we will be back in a, f- in a couple of minutes and we will continue this lively conversation with Dr. Randall Bell. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Dr. Randall Bell. We're talking about his new book, 
and uh, and we're talking about trauma, and we're tra- we're also talking about how to get unstuck. So, can we continue that conversation about how to get unstuck? Um, you just gave us a lovely definition of trauma. Um, and so, when you look at those components of what happens to our nervous system, what happens to our brain, in the research that you've done and the science that you've linked into the book, um, can you share with us some of the key elements of how we can help ourselves to, you know, not have to be in those states of distress? Well, sure, Elaine. The, the book, as I mentioned, is in three parts. And to get unstuck, you have to really process each stage. So, I tell people, please don't skip ahead. I know I, I'm, I'm the kind of person I like to, you know, get the answer and go, go to the last chapter, but you want to process each stage. So when it comes to shock, you know, that, that is about understanding the physiology. That really helps people get unstuck because then they understand what they're going through are neurotransmitters and endorphins and hormones shooting through our bloodstream that make us feel this way. That's helpful in and of itself to understand the mechanics of shock. And then denial and anger, you know, I tell people. Could we pause a little bit just about the shock? Because I think that's really important because I think many people in our country right now are experiencing shock. I think, you know, COVID-19 is one of those things when we read the news or see that many people in some parts of our country are dealing with whole communities that are being hospitalized. And so shock is, you know, sometimes we think about shock. Oh, we're shocked. What does that mean? But that often means that you're numb, that you don't can almost feel yourself. Some people have described it to me like they almost feel like there's a veil over their eyes that even the world seems more slowed down. And as people are talking to you, you sometimes can't hear them in the same way. You may even notice that you're more forgetful. And so then you go, oh my gosh, I've gone through this horrible experience and now maybe I have dementia. Um, I mean, people have actually thought that. And also they may notice when you're talking about the heart rate beating fast, some people think, oh my goodness, I better go see my cardiologist because I have pain in my chest. So if you are, even though you may be numb, you also may have physical symptoms that aren't making sense to you during that kind of shock phase of the immediate aftermath. And certainly you've seen that, haven't you? And all these places that you've been in the world after hurricanes, earthquakes, you often see people that kind of have a glazed over look in their eyes. And so to know that we often don't know that that's what it is. So helping to understand how it may show up in you or others may also help you say, well, you know, my husband's just not right since that happened or, you know, and then going, what's, what's going on? So there can be a, almost a blunted affect in how you express yourself. So I just wanted to add that because I think that's such an important thing about shock. So I, I, I want you to continue with denial. So go ahead. <laughs> well, no, so- yeah, very well said. And, and it is important to understand that physiology because it's, it's normal. It's natural. It's nature's way of protecting us from, from being overwhelmed with what's going on. But remember, like I said earlier, that's the reptilian brain. That's why our memories are so fuzzy during a trauma because we're not thinking with our outer uh, human brain. We're thinking with our inner reptilian brain. And then we get into anger, and it's the same thing. It's okay to be angry. It's normal to be angry. It, it would be shocking to someone, speaking of shock, to not be angry in the aftermath of some of these traumas. But we just don't want to hurt ourselves. We don't want to hurt others. But it's totally okay. It's okay to be depressed. That's a, a normal part, uh, you know, stop on the road of recovery. But again, we don't want to get stuck there, but it's totally, there's nothing to feel guilty about or shame about and so forth. 
as we leave the dive stage behind and get into survive, we start getting back on our feet. That's where we start experimenting with different things like, you know, should I try yoga? I've heard about yoga or should I try meditation or grounding or should I try uh, taking, uh, you know, getting out into nature more? Um, you know, there's all kinds. Of, that's kind of fun to start experimenting with all those kinds of. Uh, and those processes. are the and those are the healthy coping strategies that you're talking about. But people also can say, "I think I'm going to have another drink. I'm going to have another hit." I mean, it's right. also those kinds of things that can can lead to the problematic behaviors that sometimes do happen after these kinds of things. Yeah, and and I was going through, uh, over this with my editor, and when and she. Um, had issues with drinking really heavily after a serious trauma. When I met her, I had no idea she had, had been through a trauma, but this came out and through writing the book. And um, she said that the heavy drinking, she looked at it as a blessing because it kept her from committing suicide because she got too drunk at night to go off to the bridge she was daydreaming about for suicide. So she's over the drink. She doesn't drink anymore. But in other words, I'm trying to convey the message to not beat ourselves too much up beat ourselves up too much when we when we self-medicate uh that's i I don't want to say i don't want to pretend it's good because it's not it's unhealthy but again it's normal and we don't want to get stuck there and having more the attitude that we replace it's what i call the full glass theory when i volunteer at the homeless shelter i say you know your glass is full of junk and and a lot of people's are i'm not interested in talking about the junk it is what it is i'm not going to try and talk you out of it we're going to start you know, pouring in fresh water and new habits that are healthy and the bad ones will naturally displace. And they love that because I'm not guilt tripping them. I'm not trying to shame them or, or give them a guilt trip. I'm just saying, let's introduce some healthy things into the mix and the ugly old stuff will naturally go away. Um, and that's and think, part of yeah. this. I yeah. think that's, I'm really like, I like the way that you said it too, because I think that when these kinds of things happen and we're, we involve ourselves in things that later we may regret, there can be a beating up of self. Mm-hmm. And I think what I'm hearing from you is like, ha- give yourself some grace that you've gone through something very dramatic. And sometimes we reach out for things, not to say that they're the healthiest things, but one of the things I think that you're trying to do, and I think I'm trying to do is elevate the knowledge of the symptoms that may occur. So perhaps you won't turn to the, like your editor, you turn to heavy drinking, you just go, oh, I read Randall's book. And in that book, he says that I can do this and this might help me with that kind of reaction. So I think if we start giving that educational piece to, you know, the whole world, that's, I guess, my bucket that I would like to do, how might that change those kinds of behaviors? Do you think they could, um, Randall, change those behaviors in the beginning or not? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I don't. I certainly don't advocate heavy drinking. Um, but in her case, she looks at it as saving her lives. The point is, the point is, is that maybe the self medication is just like the the depression or the anger or whatever. It's there to help keep us, you know, sur- to survive and get to the survival mode. But we, again, we don't want to hang on to any of this stuff. We want to keep pouring that fresh water in and letting the bad stuff displace naturally. But, you know, I'll tell you, it's totally useless to go into a homeless shelter or a battered women's shelter 
or in a prison or a jail, these places where I, where I enjoy volunteering and saying, stop smoking, stop smoking. You know, <laughs> doesn't work. That just doesn't work. What, what does work is to say, you know what, it is what it is, and I accept you just the way you are, but let's start doing some of these things that are healthy. Let's start you know, exercising. Let's go to the library. Even if you're homeless, go to the library and check out a book and, and read a book. Go down to the beach and, and take a walk on the beach. Those are things that if you're, if you're doing that, it naturally displaces by the virtue of time that you're, you're not doing some of these other things. So that's more the approach I take all the way through. So, you know, the other thing I was you know, saying a little bit about grief, and I want to see if this is your experience. My experience with grief in the stages that you just mentioned, it's not necessarily sequential for some people. It's more like a spiral that sometimes people, although I can see this thing with shock being the initial thing, but the other ones, anger, depression, um, even bargaining, all those can be more like a cycle. And so I've seen where people say, well, I've already got, I've already been angry, but now I'm angry again. Is there something wrong with me? No, there's nothing wrong with you. It just means that there's another element that may have been uncovered about whatever that was lost as a result of the trauma that may bring out another emotional response. Have you seen that to be true or not, um, Randall? Not only I've seen it throughout the whole book, I use a term, I think you'll like this, Elaine. I use a term rinse and repeat. You know, <laughs> yes. I have to tell you, I think, I think we're related, uh, Randall. <laughs> I think we may be. Yes. You know, the, the, uh, you get into the third section where we're talking about thriving. And I keep reminding people, even, even in that thriving stage, that there are going to be days where you walk, wake up and you're going to be mad again, or you're going to be depressed for that day or whatever. That's again, okay. It's rinse and repeat, but the more you do it, the easier it becomes. And those bad moments become, there's more and more distance between them. But yeah, I, I haven't had one for a while, but yes, yeah, some days I wake up and I'm upset that for whatever reason, I was born with a congenital heart defect. And then, you know, I have, you know, memories that are unpleasant about the whole thing. But those days are fewer and far between. between uh, you know, more distance. Yeah. yeah. And so when you talk about your, your, the die, survive, thrive. So mm-hmm. is this part, the surviving part? Is this what you're yeah, talking about? We're still about? talking about survival. We haven't okay. got into the real fun stuff about okay. surviving yeah, yet. We got to get to that. But is there anything more that you want to talk about regarding the survival part? Because I think, I think many people in our country are in the survival part right now. Well, we all are because we're, we think we're through with this COVID thing and we're, and we're still not. I mean, we want to, the survival is about uh, confronting things, honestly. It's about experimenting with different things to see what kind of floats your boat in terms of uh, self-care. It's about sorting things out. It's about, you know, lessons in acceptance and a, and a new level of awareness. Those are basically the themes of survival is getting back on your feet and, and having int- more intelligent conversations that go beyond the anger and go beyond the depression and, and hopefully a step towards uh, healing. So you're talking about a greater self-awareness. So when you have yeah. greater self-awareness, then that helps you move out of the survival stage into thriving. Right. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Well said. Okay. So. We got, is it time to talk about thriving? Because <laughs> I know let's that's okay. It. Let's do it. So, all right. Let's hear yeah. about this. So, t- give us what you got. <laughs> what well, you the, first, about first? the first, yeah, the first t- uh, chapter in the survival stage is kind of a ticklish one because some people are okay with it and some people are really uncomfortable. And, and that's I talk about faith, and I talk about uh, and you know take whatever position you want to on faith. But the the statistical studies are very very clear. People that have faith of some kind heal better than those who have no faith. 
and um, and I try to um, be respectful of the reader because some people have been triggered by high demand religions or or something like that. Leo Fender did what he was went to a Christian church when he was a young man. He had his eye out. Uh, the treasurer stole the money, and he didn't want anything to do with Christianity for the rest of his life. Until the end of his life, he became a Christian again. But my point is, is that we got to talk about the, uh, this issue of faith and the reality that people who have some faith in a higher power, just like they talk about in AA programs, tend to heal more successfully than those who uh, shut the door on that. So that's a big discussion and I try to be accommodating to wherever people are, are there, but that's, that's a real reality. We got to, we got to face. I think that's an interesting, what I have found, there's a question that I ask when I'm at disasters, I ask, what is helping you get through if anything? And the number one answer is faith. Mm-hmm. And what I've seen, and I like you, I've been to so many different places. And so I can remember, you know, in Haiti, someone saying, I got Jesus right here in my heart. Mm-hmm. And that Jesus is helping me through this. In China, after the Sichuan earthquake, often the Buddhists would wear an effigy, a jade effigy of the Buddha around their neck. I'd ask that question, and this is through a translator. I don't speak Chinese. They'd say, oh, the teachings of Buddha. But whether they said it was Jesus or Buddha or Allah or one of the Hindu gods, because I've been in all those different places, but they always said their faith. There was always a deeper parasympathetic breath that went along with their faith. And so I'm going, oh, there you go. You said it was about science and the nervous system. And isn't that what we're trying to do in survival is helping people not only to say the things that have meaning to them from our cognitive prefrontal cortex, but what happens to our body? So that's my science question for you connected to this to faith. So how is this, how is the science connected to faith, Randall? Well, uh, I, I actually just spent all weekend studying that issue. There's a lot of Oh, science. good. I'm so glad you're well-versed. Yeah, come at a good time where I kind of have to sit on that. I mean, a lot of people, you know, slam the door shut on any kind of supernatural issue. And I'm not talking about, you know, uh, silly, you know, supernatural uh, discussions. I'm talking about more legitimate uh, faith-based, you know, supernatural beliefs. And, you know, as a scientist, you know, I have a PhD in epistemologies and hermeneutics and that whole discussion of, of, of the scientific method, which I published on, there's a hypothesis. And you can't prove that hypothesis is wrong, that there's not a higher power. It's, it, you can't prove, you know, it's, and it's also hard to prove it true either way. But as long as it's an, a viable hypothesis, it's scientifically not very uh, scientific to slam the door shut on something that could be viable. So, from a scientific point of view, um, you you can't shut the door on that. That door needs to be open to the thought. You know, like Jesus himself said, "You ask, you seek, you knock. You keep that you keep that awareness and that exploration going." And whether I, I loved what you said about Buddha or Muhammad um, um, or you know all kinds of different ways people reach there. But that the science is that people heal better with that faith. That's statistically proven um, and really hard to deny. Well, and you know, the, an intro, I don't know if you've read Dr. Andrew Newberg, but he talked about um, this whole thing about faith, belief, the neuroscience of this. And this, I read his book a long time ago, but one of the things that, that, I, that he said was that your faith 
isn't necessarily a higher power. For many people, it is. But for some people, it could be your belief in science. Or it could believe, or that's, I think, an AA. Your higher power is whatever you call it to be. But if you don't have that something that's, I think, above and beyond self, that I think the healing is, is, um, is more difficult. And it yeah. could be your community. Um, and maybe you have a faith in your community. But it is, it is, it is a, I also have noticed that if you lose your faith as a result of the traumatic experience, it's much harder to, to thrive and, and recover. So it sounds like you've had that same experience. Same thing. And, and the, um, whether, whatever semantics or name you call it, some people call it humanity or a, a faith in nature or the collective spirit. It, there's, I have a friend, he doesn't like the word God. He uses creative force. I, I'm not here to dictate or direct anybody how, how to address that other than just pointing out that a, a, a faith in a higher power. Uh, and Charles Darwin himself, if you buy an original copy of The Origin of the Species, he, he credits the creator throughout the book. It's kind of funny. So, so you know, some kind of faith of some kind is statistically proven to help healing. There's this no question. Well, I think Einstein talked a lot about that, that power in the universe as well. I mean, these incredible scientists that had this vista that brought in innovation to yeah. help look at the world. Yeah. So, so what is there something in addition to faith that you've also found that's important in the thriving part? There, there is. The, the, the other thing is a sense of connection and community. And this is me. If I have one important thing to say, um, it's this. Trauma recovery is the number one problem on planet Earth. Or, or trauma, unresolved trauma is the number one problem. But nobody recovers from trauma as a solo exercise. It is not a solo exercise. There has to be a connection with some kind of, you know, group or community. And you got to accept help. People will offer help. It's important to take a little pill of humility and accept that help and, and connection and finding those connections, reestablishing connections is essential. Well, you know, I think that this is a very important um, issue of today because I think COVID has driven many people to be in their homes by themselves. So do you have any words of wisdom about just the certain, you know, this kind of current condition that we're in? You know, if someone isn't partnered, if they're by themselves, I, I do worry about them for the very same reason that connection, human connection is so important. So is there something that you would recommend, Randall, about that? Yeah, in my own situation, I was I I had COVID in January, and I have a group of high school friends. We would have the Zoom calls, uh, picking up the phone. You know, is still completely safe. <laughs> and and uh, if you're feeling lonely, I have friends um, that that have just said, you know what, I'm been cooped up in my place, and I just wanted to talk to someone. And I've done that myself. So talking to people, the, the two dynamic duo, there's about eight principles in the book, and I don't know that we have time to go through all of them, but the dynamic duo is one sitting in the fire, having conversations, and the other one is grounding, deep breathing exercises. Literally, it, it's very simple, but it rewires our brain from the, um, from the sympathetic to the parasympathetic nervous systems. Um, and there are other things, but having, keeping those conversations going, even if we're in isolation is essential. I happen to know with the jails and prisons, those folks are having a really hard time because A, they're in jail or prison and B, they don't have any visitors. It's, it's a double whammy. 
Yeah, and I think this is the same thing that's happened with people that have been hospitalized, where they can't have people come. To, they may see the nurses or the the physicians, but they can't see their family, and that those kinds of connections become more difficult. Right. So, I um, mean, you said that there's eight steps. We've talked about a couple. Is there, you know, one or two that you want to highlight in the time we have left? Well, the uh, there, my mind is racing all over the place. You, you, there's a discussion about forgiveness. And dispelling, I think when we talk about forgiveness, that means mainly dispelling the myths of forgiveness. You don't forgive and forget. We're not going to forget COVID. You know, the, the gentleman I met on the Bikini and Toll is not going to forget losing his daughter. No, you, no. you know, when I was at Nicole Brown Simpson's uh, family's kitchen table, they're not going to forget about losing their daughter. That's, that's a silly advice. Uh, but the whole idea with trauma is to allow the memory of that trauma to pass through our minds without being re-triggered, meaning going into the fight, flight, freeze mode. That's the goal. So I want everyone to understand there's, a, there's an objective here, and it's to, not to forgive, or, or it's not to forget, but to forgive, meaning we allow the memory to pass through our minds without getting re-triggered and having that whole flash of emotion of, uh, and feeling the shock all over again. That's, that's our objective. And is that what you call the good news of hope? Because I know that's something that you speak about, the good news of hope. That's the hope, is to allow those memories to go through. We drive by that high school where something horrible happened, or we drive by that house where something happened, or we hear that song on the radio, or we happen to run into somebody uh, who wasn't uh, uh, on their best behavior with us. We are not re-triggered. And, and the the grand cherry on top of this whole thing is to do exactly what the work you're doing and I'm trying to contribute to, and that's service. You know, going and volunteering in the jails and the prisons. You know, I've been to church a thousand times, but I'll tell you the spiritual experience in jail or in prison and helping somebody who's really, really struggling with life, really seriously wondering if they even want to stay alive, that's the most satisfying thing there possibly could be. That's the most spiritual experience you've had. And some of my co-volunteers uh, um, are atheists. It's, it's something we can all kind of agree on that this yeah. is identical. Well, and I guess what I'm hearing from you, too, is what I, I want to really kind of say about you is your humility, because I know that your prison work is very important to you. And to hear what you said about yourself in the beginning, I, I just have great gratitude for the work that you're doing in the world, Randall. So thank you so much for being on the show. And I imagine there's people saying, I want to. I want to find out how I can get a hold of this guy. So, could you give us your um, your uh, web page so people know how to contact you? Yeah, What's sure. It? My my web page is uh, drbell.com. I'm part of a nonprofit that I formed called Core IQ. So you'll see Core IQ. But just go to Dr. Bell. I love the conversation. I love speaking with you, Elaine. And uh, email me. I love hearing the stories of uh, resilience and bouncing back. Uh, and I love hearing the stories of the process and, and even the, the difficult parts. Um, but but uh, please reach out on drbell.com. Okay. And also, I'd love for you to say the name of your book one more time. It's, it's right here, Post-Traumatic Thriving, uh, The Art, Science, and Stories of Resilience. So, again, thank you so much. It's been such a blessing to, to get to know you over the last month or so since we started conversing. And so, for all of our listeners, I just want to really remind you what else is true in your life. I think we've had in some incredible examples of how Randall is being a natural leader, a natural healer. Uh, maybe that's how you, you were not initially trained, but I think that's what you've become. And so, how you can maybe contribute to your community 
So remember what else is true about your life. And this is Elaine Miller-Karis signing off for Resiliency Within. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karis, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within, with host Elaine Miller-Karis, is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.